All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all today. Wonderful morning of uh, worship. Praise the Lord. Uh, today we are really in for a great treat as we have one of the greatest exaltations of Christ in all of Scripture. So I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. We are in Colossians chapter 1 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study of this great little epistle. And our verses this morning will be 15 to 20. And as is our practice, I want to just first read our text in full, and then after we can look at each of these wonderful verses more closely. So let's just jump right into it. We are in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Here now are the words of the living and true God. Speaking of Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In these six verses of Colossians 1, we get perhaps the most clearest depiction of who Jesus Christ is. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity. This is the essence of what we believe. This is the foundation of our faith. This is the battleground over which historically the church has fought many battles over and the cults and all the isms that have attempted to take out of Christianity its lifeblood. And that is the issue of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. I say it probably every other sermon. They want to change the person and they want to change the work of Jesus Christ. Then you have a different Christ who cannot save you. And that's the issue here. And this doctrine is not secondary. This is primary. It is foundational to the question, who is Jesus Christ? And let me be incredibly clear on this. You cannot be saved if you are wrong about who Jesus Christ is. If you believe in a false Christ, that false Christ cannot save you. And so just as this was critically important 2,000 years ago to the church in Colossae, it is just as important for us today because in the world in which you and I live today, there's oh, a lot of talk about Jesus. For example, the Muslims believe in Jesus, though for him... You know, he's only a prophet. The Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus, though they believe he was just a God 
one of many so-called gods. And if you're a Mormon, you also believe in Jesus, though he and Satan are spirit brothers. And so there's a lot of people out there who will dedicate their life to a false religion who will preach and believe in a false Christ. And so we've got to be clear when we are talking about Christ, when we're talking about salvation, and this is through Christ and Christ alone. And when we talk about who Christ is, we're talking about the Christ as revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. Not a Christ invented by man, not a Christ invented by a religion, the Christ as made known to us on the pages of uh, Scripture that was born of a a virgin, that lived a sinless life, that died on the cross, that was buried in a tomb, that was raised from the dead on the third day, that ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and is one day coming back again. This is the Jesus of Scripture. Before we get into our verses this morning, we have to remember the context into which Paul was writing to. Um, During our introduction a few weeks back, we talked about the false teachers who were attempting to infiltrate the church at Colossae. And this false teaching would come to be known as the Colossian heresy, which was essentially a, a real soup of Uh, false doctrine. You had some Greek mysticism in there, some Jewish legalism in there, and Gnosticism as the primary components. And so Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter in part to refute this heretical teaching. And these were a group of people who believed they had a, a, a deeper knowledge of spiritual truths than anybody else. And they were dissatisfied with with what they considered to be the rude simplicity of Christianity and wished to turn it into a philosophy that better aligned with the philosophies of their time. And one of the things they taught was a form of um, philosophical dualism. For example, they believed um, spirit was good and matter was evil. Now God, being altogether good, was a spirit. So they did have that part right. But if spirit was altogether good and matter was altogether uh, evil, it followed, at least as the Gnostics saw it, that the true God could not actually touch that evil matter and therefore could not himself be a part of creation. So what they believed about creation is that God sent out a series of these emanations, these kind of spirit beings, these sub-gods, And as these emanations went further and further from God, they became more and more ignorant of Him. And as this continued until eventually they became so far from Him that they actually became hostile to God until at last there was one so far down the road, so distant from God, that He was able to handle matter and it created this evil world. They further believed that Jesus was merely one of these earlier good emanations that came from God. And since they believed that the body was evil and the spirit was good, Jesus only appeared to have a body. And when the disciples saw him, he was nothing more than a a spiritual phantom. And so they would say things like when Jesus walked on the shores of Galilee, he would leave no footprints in the sand. And though he might have been the greatest of these one of many emanations, he was just 
one of many. And so the heretics denied both the deity of Christ as well as the perfect humanity of Christ. And while they gathered and worshipped in the name of Jesus, they did not know the true biblical Jesus, did they? And so I'll say it again, you cannot be wrong about who Jesus is. So as we walk through this text together, you will notice Paul refutes these heresies and what it really all comes down to is this question of who is Christ? Do you know him? Do you love him? Is it the right one? Not the Jesus of your uh, imagination that you came up with. Not a Jesus who is anything less than the Jesus we see revealed on the pages of Scripture. But do you know the Jesus that in, in everything is preeminent, sovereign, the one who is before all things, and yet He created all things, and whom all things are for. That's the Jesus Paul's about to show us in Colossians chapter 1 as we encounter the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Buckle up. I could have kept you here all day long. All right, as we look at verses 15 to 20, Paul reveals our Lord's true identity by viewing him in relation to five separate things. God, creation, we'll call it principalities and powers or the uh, spiritual realm, the church, and then the culmination of everything else. Paul kind of wraps it all up at, at the end. Everything else preeminent in Christ. So let's draw your attention to, to number one and Jesus' relation to God. What is Jesus in relation to God? And I want you to notice the description that Paul gives of Christ in verse 15. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now remember the context. The heretics view Jesus as one among a series of these lesser spirits that descended from God. But Paul refutes that with two powerful descriptions of who Jesus really is. And the first, Paul describes him as the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. This word for image is the Greek word icon, and it means an image or a likeness of something. It's used in Matthew 22, 20 of Caesar's um, portrait on a coin. And if the representation is perfect enough, this word can mean a manifestation, which is what we see here. Here is the exact image of the invisible God. This is described further for us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This phrase, exact imprint, refers to an engraving tool or a stamp. Again, like the idea of Caesar's face on a coin. But Jesus here is the exact imprint of God. This is who Christ is. Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. That is why he could say in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
in Christ, the invisible God became visible. Listen to the Apostle John's eyewitness account as someone who spent three plus years walking and talking with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John was never the same after experiencing that glory. <laughs> okay? This was no emanation, no phantom, no sub-God. In fact, listen to what he said later on when he wrote his first epistle to the church, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So to answer the question, who is Jesus in relation to God, Paul agrees with the rest of Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the full, final, complete revelation of God. He is God in human flesh. The exact imprint of his nature. And then at the end of verse 15, Paul further describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Now this word for firstborn is very important. Prototokos in the original Greek. And that word can be used in a couple of different ways. It can refer to the firstborn in the sense of chronology. But primarily, it refers to a position or a rank in authority. It can mean also the right to rule. But we see it used both ways in Scripture. And so in order for us to rightly divide the text, we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And the context is what will help us to understand what is in view. So, for example, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And so here we see that it is referring to Christ being the firstborn of his siblings. So here it's referring to the firstborn in chronology, not in position or in rank. He's the oldest. He's Mary's firstborn son. But the word is also used to refer to a special authority or a special rank or a special status, as I mentioned. And we see it used in that way in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God calls Israel my firstborn son, the nation. And though these weren't the first people born, they held first place in God's sight among the nations. Israel was God's chosen elect people. And so this example refers to position or rank. Now, this was normative in both Jewish and, and Greek cultures. That's why it's used either way in both the Old and New Testament. So we're turning now to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Let's see if we can rightly identify which way Paul is using this. Is it in chronology or is it in rank or position? Notice what he writes. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we know this doesn't mean that he was created. Let me just jump, jump right to that. We have to be very, very careful here. Because there are all kinds of heretical beliefs and teachings that have come out of this that would teach that Jesus was, in fact, created. There are about 9 million Jehovah Witnesses that believe Jehovah God created Jesus, the Archangel Michael. So, how do we know what this means? Again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. First of all, we must look at context. Context, context, context. Right away, we know it's not referring to Christ being the firstborn child because of what it says in the very next verse. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. He's not created, he's the creator. So why does it say then he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, it's speaking in terms of his rank, his position amongst his creation. It's saying this is the preeminent one. He alone has the status and the authority. He alone has this position of being over all things. For by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And this is the same thing that the Bible says in John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Far from being one of a series of emanations descending from God, Jesus is God. And when Jesus came down out of heaven, he revealed to us the perfect image of God. He is the preeminent inheritor over all creation. He existed both before the creation and he is exalted in rank above it. How about that? Yeah. Remember in John's Gospel, for those of you who spent a year and a half with us going through that wonderful Gospel, um, Jesus absolutely blew the minds of the religious leaders on more than one occasion. And you might recall when he said to them, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And remember what Jesus said? Before Abraham was, I am. I am. And they picked up stones to stone him to death because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be the same I am, who I am, that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And then again in John 10.30, what was Jesus' claim? He said, I and the Father are one. And it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. But Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them do you stone me for? Verse 33, the religious leaders tell us why they wanted to kill Jesus. 
They said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you for, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. How many times have you ever heard, Jesus never claimed to be God in Scripture? And we saw it over and over and over and over again in John's Gospel, didn't we? His own accusers said, we wanted to kill him because everywhere he went, he kept claiming to be God. And that was true, he did. Because he was. And it's. And it's to come. So these truths define who Jesus is in relation to God. And at the same time, Paul is correcting all kinds of false theology. In just a few words, the Spirit crushes the lies of Satan as he uses each of these words very, very purposely, aligning our hearts front and center to the real Jesus Christ. And I hope your heart is beginning to warm and expand and, and get wider and deeper for the things of Christ. Because guess what? Paul's just getting started. <laughs> Next, he shows us point number two and Jesus' relation to creation. Jesus' relation to creation. And we already peeked at this, but let's just look at it again quickly. Notice what it says in uh, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And let's just stop right there. Paul now gives multiple reasons for Jesus' supremacy over all creation. First, he is the creator. He's not created. We've already covered that part. Um, the false teachers at Colossae view Jesus as the most important of the emanations from God. You know, they weren't so much worried about kicking God or specifically Jesus Christ out of the church. It was just Christ plus, right? Christ plus works. Christ plus secret knowledge. Christ plus this. And the same is true today. They seem to keep Christ around just long enough to use his name. But these were convinced that it had to be a lesser being that had come much further down the chain who eventually created this material matter universe. But Paul, flat as out, rejects that as blasphemy, insisting that by him all things were created. That truth is affirmed as we just saw in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him, without Christ, was not anything made that was made. Further, we can't leave out Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so here we see that Christ was also a part of creation. The entire triune Godhead was there. We have God the Father creating in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have God the Spirit creating in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. 
And then we have God the Son also creating in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Further, his relationship to the world is mentioned in the next verse also. Notice verse 17. This is incredible. Look at what Paul says. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus as the Son of God has always existed. He's never been created. He is before all things. Before he ever came into the world, he existed in eternity past, along with the rest of the triune Godhead. God always was. There's no part of God that was ever not. In fact, going back again to John's Gospel, that great 17th chapter as Jesus was praying to the Father, he prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? The glory which I had with you, Father, before there was even a world. You know, when you and, and, and me and, and the Spirit just existed eternally, perfectly. Just imagine that. The Godhead just eternally self-existent, dwelling in all eternity past. The Son couldn't wait to get that glory back. He, he humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And He could not wait for that glory that He had set aside, not losing deity, but adding humanity as he humbled himself and came as a servant, came as a man as appeared as a man. In Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. In the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, he said, I am the root and the offspring of David. <laughs> How incredible is that? How can he be both the, the source of David and the son of David? And yet he is. This, beloved, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then notice this phrase in verse 17. <clears throat> Back to our verse. Paul says, in him all things hold together. And this is another startling statement. Did you know that the entire universe is being held together by Christ? Again, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1 can really be your commentary for um, Colossians 1, and this section of verses 15 to 20. But in Hebrews 1, 3, it says that he, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. <laughs> he spoke it into existence. It's really no wonder that Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh. So, to sum up points one and two, answering the question, who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And just read the verse, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Therefore, beloved, he must be God. <laughs> he made the universe, and he existed before it. And he upholds it all by the word of his power. 
leads us to point number three and Jesus' relation to, we'll call it the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. And this is found in the second half of verse 16, where it says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The first half of verse 16 speaks to the physical world, the physical creation, while the second half of verse 16 refers more to the spiritual realm. And so whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or like we see in Ephesians, principalities and powers, these are all referring to various ranks of, of angels or specifically um, demons, fallen angels. And I would just say this, you don't need to get too hung up on the distinctions of each of these. Because the whole point of it is whoever and whatever they are, Christ is over all of them. That's the point here. Christ is preeminent over all things. The one who created all things, he is over all things. As the one who spoke everything into existence, he is the preeminent one over all that he has made. And so at the end of verse 16, Paul reminds us all things were created through him and for him. Now what Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not only giving us some really great theology, but he is helping you to make sure that you do not get wrong who Jesus is. If you were to just walk downtown here, and to ask someone today, you know, hey, do you believe in Jesus? You might be surprised by how many people today would actually say, oh, sure, I believe in Jesus. But you might just ask the next question, which is, which Jesus? The Gnostics Jesus? The Mormons Jesus? The Jesus of your own imagination? Which one? Have you ever been around and heard someone say, well, that's not my Jesus. <laughs> oh, oh, my Jesus would never do that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And the issue, beloved, if I can be clear, is never about your Jesus. <laughs> it is about the Jesus. That's what matters. That is what your eternity hinges on. What will you do with the true biblical Christ? And so we live in a day where people want to toss around phrases like, you know, you just have to live your own truth, girl. <laughs> and I just want to say with gentleness and with respect, but also with clarity, your truth does not matter it doesn't it really doesn't the truth matters but where do we go to find the truth you would go straight to jesus christ who himself declared in john 14 6 i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. 
And so I say it again, you cannot afford to be wrong about Jesus. Romans 11.36 tells us, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And so wrapping up the end of verse 16, it says something really truly profound. Paul says that all things were created through Him and for Him. Which means not only were you made by Him, but you were also made for Him. That means that no matter what has happened to you in your life, your life still has meaning. It still has purpose. You were made in the image of God. And you were created through Christ. And so no matter what somebody else thinks about you, and really no matter what even you might think about yourself, you were made in the image of God. Male and female, He created them. And not only were you made by Him, you were also made for Him. So you exist to bring glory to God. Which means that if you were to bind to the lies of this world, which tell you that you are nothing more than an accident, a simple chance that you came into this world, life is nothing more than a series of randomless, uh, purposeless events that mean absolutely nothing at the end, because what is the end? And, you know, if you're lucky enough to live for a couple meaningless decades and the whole purpose and the goal for your life is just to live the best way you can, make a name for yourself and have a good time, you've missed the very reason for which you have been created for. You were not created to make a name for yourself. You were created to bring glory to the name of Christ because all things were created through him and for him. And let us never forget that. All right, that takes us to number four. And Jesus' relation to the church. Jesus' relation to the church. Notice how verse 18 begins. He says, Christ is also head of the body, the church. So what is Jesus' relation to the church? He is the head of it. Now the Bible speaks of the church with a variety of metaphors. It's called a family, a, a flock, a, a vineyard, a, the bride of Christ. And the metaphor used here, and probably the most, is that of a body. The church is a body, and Christ is the head of that body. Now, it's not used in the sense of um, the head of a company. Christ is the head of the company. Uh, but rather looks at the church as a, a um, living organism. An actual body, inseparably tied together by the living Christ. And as the head, he leads it, he controls it. And we know that every biblical church, though there are many um, differences, each biblical church will have um, these commonalities. Christ will be the head of it. Um, you will have faithful preaching. Um, godly men who, who lead and counsel the body to Christ. 
not to me and my 10 steps, to Christ. You'll have leaders who serve the body of Christ. And you have the body itself, its members, who use their spiritual gifts, as we just read in Romans this morning, to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And I wonder how we would treat one another if we actually realized that we are part of the body of Christ. Not all these individual members, but the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to do certain things, but these things we know. And how do we know these things? Because this is exactly what the Bible has called us to. And this is important because we need to remind ourselves that the head of the church is not your pastor. It is Christ. It's not my church. It's certainly not your church. Christ is the head. He leads it, he gives direction to it, and ultimately, he is in control of it. And if this ever gets messed up, if we ever forget that Christ is the head of the church, then that local assembly is headed for real, real trouble. And, you know, it's tempting to think when we come across verses like this, well, we don't even need to really dwell on this that long, because after all, we are a Bible-believing church. And so let's just kind of skip past this part. Nope, not so fast. <laughs> we must never forget the foundation of what this church is, and it is Christ. Christ is the head of this church. And let us never forget that. It's not a man's. It's not a, a group of men. Christ is the head. He brings life to the church. He guides the church. In fact, in Matthew 16, 18, speaking of the church, Christ said, upon this rock I will build, what? My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, not only is he the head of the church, but Paul also adds, and he is the beginning. And this really just kind of keeps carrying this idea further. And this word for beginning is, is the word RK, and it carries with it the idea of um, uh, the source or originating power. In other words, Christ is its source. He started the church. He empowers it. And again, the idea here is he is the highest in rank of the church. He is the head of the church. He has established the church. He has built the church, and he's forever the highest ranking factor in that church. He doesn't just start the church and, and run away from it. He doesn't just establish the church and then hand it over. He is its source as the preeminent one ruling over it. And it doesn't matter how big or how small this church gets, there's only one head and his name is Jesus Christ. And if any church ever misses that, if any church is ever wrong on who Jesus is, then Christ and his authority over the church will cease the church from being a true church. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, the church in Ephesus was a very um, gifted and, and blessed church. Um, apostles uh, Paul, uh, Peter, uh, John, uh, all uh, ministered and pastored there. Likely Timothy was also there at different points in time. Um, they had, they're described as having great discernment 
and wisdom. Everyone knows the church of, of Ephesus written to the Ephesians. They had solid biblical teaching, and yet Jesus said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Jesus said, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What happened to the church in Ephesus? They got so busy doing church, they fought, forgot about that it was the Lord's church. They fought, forgot about their first love. He was still on their list, I'm sure, but he was no longer first. He was no longer head of the church. And that's what can happen even with a church such as this. People are still talking about how they love Christ, but you, know, you never really see them show up in any tangible way in their life. They have a head knowledge, but they don't have a heart knowledge of him. And so we must never forget he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, meaning he is the first in our hearts. Now, as we continue in verse 18, it says he is not only the beginning, but he is also the firstborn from the dead. And there's that word again, prototokos, the, the firstborn. And here it's the firstborn from the dead. So we have to ask ourselves, in, in which sense did Paul mean it this time? Does he mean firstborn chronologically, as it is sometimes used? Or does he mean firstborn in terms of rank or status or preeminence as it is sometimes used. Well, we ask ourselves, how is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Well, we certainly can say in, in one sense, we know that he's not the first person chronologically to have been raised from the dead. We know that because Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus speaks Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out in his grave clothes and, and raises Lazarus back to life. So in that sense, we know Jesus is not chronologically the first person raised from the dead, but in another sense, there is something unique about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised with a glorified body. A glorified body. That's never happened before. When Jesus raised Lazarus back to life, it was a wonderful miracle for Lazarus. Lazarus was certainly happy. It was a wonderful demonstration of the uh, power and deity of Jesus Christ. But his body, Lazarus, one day wore down. At some point along the way, Lazarus once again died. And so in that sense, the kind of resurrection Jesus had unto a, a glorified body is not only the preeminent in kind, it is also the first of its kind. No one else has been raised from the dead eternally as Christ has been raised in glorified form. So I think you can take this almost in both ways of this context. He is the firstborn from the dead in kind. He is the prototokos. He is the supreme one, the, the first in rank. He is the first fruits, the, the very best of all who have fallen asleep. And that's why at the end of verse 18, what's it saying? That in everything, he might be preeminent. Romans 14, verse 9 kind of sums it up for us. It says, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
Yes, He is the one who gives life and direction to the church. And yes, He is the one who is the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. There is no other in this category. There is only Jesus Christ. He is unique. He is matchless. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not anybody else. No, any other religious leader or pastor or guru. Not anybody who has ever lived is in the category with Jesus Christ. He is the supreme one and the guarantee of the resurrection of all the rest who believe in him. Thus, he is the preeminent. He is the first fruits from the dead. And it stands to reason, beloved, that the one who is first in rank in all the universe, the one who is the forerunner, the one who sustains all creation by the word of his power, the one who is the head and the life and the power of his church, and the one who is the firstborn from the dead before all others has got to be the one who is preeminent. Nobody who has ever lived has lived the history that Jesus Christ has. He is supreme and there is none like him. Well, I close this with number five is Jesus' relation to the consummation of all things. And here, Paul just kind of sums it all up in verses 19 and 20. He has spoken of Jesus in relation to God, in relation to creation, in relation to the unseen world, in relation to the church, and now he speaks of Jesus in relation to everything else. Notice what he says in verse 19. These are some great verses that really we could spend digging on for weeks and weeks at a time to get to the end of the reality of them. Paul says in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul sums it up by saying this, mark it, the powers and attributes of deity were not to be distributed among the, the multitude of emanations. It was all given to one. God never said, I got an idea, I'm going to pass out my deity to, to all these different sub-gods and, and then I'll be able to function in this cosmos because you, I can't touch nothing. <laughs> right? Nope. The Bible says, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And again, Paul swiftly crushes the lies that are being spread about these, by these false teachers. Paul says, no, there is no other expression of God than the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. This one, says Paul, in him dwells the, the, play, the pleroma of God. The, this is the, um, the, the fullness, the um, completion of God is found in no one else but in Jesus Christ. And again, just listen to this idea of fullness from John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth he had it all and we all know john 1 16 for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace again indicating his fullness in fact look right over at colossians chapter 2 verse 9 for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of the rule and authority why don't we need anything else? Because it's all there in Christ. It's all there in the fullness 
of Christ. All you need is Him, for all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Him. And the question that might come to mind at this point would simply be, why? Why did God do all this? Why did Christ come? Why did God become a man and, and when He was born that might, men might treat Him the way that He did? He came to His own. His own received them not. Why did Jesus do it? And go through the betrayal and the hatred and the... And the oh. Well, I think it's made very clear by the passage that surrounds the one we're in. Just go back a couple verses. Last week we were in verses 13 and 14 for just a moment. And, you know, ask the question, why would God do this? Verse 13 says, because He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Now jump down to verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did he do it? He did it to make peace between God and man. Well, ever since the fall in the garden, there's been a, a war raging between man and God. God would certainly have been just to damn us to eternal judgment right there and then. As man has done nothing but walk in wickedness and in disobedience and filth for all of our days. And yet God who's rich in mercy and is so, so patient. Not wishing for any Paris, but for all to come to repentance. Christ it's almost stretching out his hands first upon the cross for us at Calvary. And now it's almost as he's making a way by holding the hand of, of God the Father and coming down and reaching unto man to, to bring us together, this, this separation, this divide that happened because of sin. As Christ reaches out his hand through this infinite sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He seeks to join us together with Him as only He can reconcile us to God and make peace by the blood of His cross and the forgiveness of sins. That's why He came. Because He alone can do that. And you can take man's hand and, and join it together with God again. I love that picture of seeing in Genesis God being in the garden with man. It's amazing. And we'll return one day to be with him again. Well, that was the sermon for today. Um, if you need prayers this morning, you are welcome to come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you.